This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Uh, today, I'm delighted to be joined by Bill Schmarzo. So Bill has recently finished up uh, a stint working for Hitachi Ventara as the Chief Innovation Officer. Is a published author, uh, four books, uh, just released his, his new books. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, the pressure's so, on. Okay, the pressure's on. <laughs> the, the pressure. So, I just want to give some context to this because I guess most of our guests um, have seen a very loose description of the type of questions that I'm probably going to ask. And obviously, just to give the the audience some context, when me and Bill were kind of um, in cahoots about putting this together, um, Bill said to me. I don't want to see any questions. I just want to go into this blind because that's, uh, you know, that's how it works best. So um, th- this should be interesting and um, a lot of fun, I'm sure. So, Bill, obviously, I've given you a very brief introduction, but I'm, I'm sure by no means done it any justice whatsoever. So can you just give us kind of a bit of an intro into your background and your journey to date and, you know, up until the point where we're at right now? Well, my, my journey is actually pretty straightforward here, Kyle. And the fact is, I've always been a data and analytics person, even starting when I was a, uh, you know, in, in middle school and got hooked on this game called Stratomatic Baseball, which was kind of the early forerunner for sabermetrics in the baseball space. And right. ever since then, I've just been a junkie for data and analytics. And so if you, you plot my career, it's always been around data and analytics. Now I've had I've been very fortunate. I've had several force gump moments, right? Right place at the right time that has had a huge deviation on my career. Um, sometimes it's better to be lucky than to be good. Um, but that that has gotten me here um, through a series of lucky opportunities and just a fascination with how one can use data and analytics to really make better decisions. So I guess just for some context for the audience then, obviously some big names on your resume. Just talk us through some of the companies that you've worked for and I guess the types of roles that you've had and you know how long you've you've been you've been in the game, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I was uh, the vice president of advertising analytics at uh, Yahoo, which was at the dawn of the Hadoop development in the big data space. Again, that's clearly a force got moment that I went and when it was at Yahoo, building these analytics that we were targeting for our um, media planners and buyers and the campaign managers, helping them to optimize their campaigns across the Yahoo ad network. So that was that was my first real exposure in transitioning me from a BI data warehouse world, which by the way, was work I had done with Procter & Gamble back in the 80s, it helped me to transition from that sort of frame of mind to a whole different frame of mind. And and, and during that Yahoo experience, what, what I realized is a lot of things that I had learned about data warehousing and BI were totally irrelevant. And in fact, they were they were they 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 handicapped you when you thought about this world of big data. 
And so again, that these these Forrest Gump moments always force you to retrospectively look and figure out what is it that I've believed in? What am I seeing here? And how do I justify and, and internalize the transition? So the Yahoo experience was phenomenal. I uh, did a couple of startups. Everybody does startups. One of them was really successful. A couple of them were flaming disasters. That's you know part of the scars on one's back. Uh, the, the, my opportunity at EMC, um, where I was the, the CTO of the big data practice, was a great opportunity. In fact, they're, they're the ones, the marketing people, they're the ones who pushed me to write my very first book. I'd been blogging quite a bit and I had been talking to a lot of customers. And, and so that again was there's a pivot point there where, you know, they pushed me to do this. And I've been working with some great customers and the book just rolled it. The first book was called Big Data. And then the, the, the book that really launched me was my second book called The Big Data NBA. And there's a story behind that too. So you ask for it, so you're going to get it. Of course, you can, you can slice this out. But um, I was introduced to um, a professor at the University of San Francisco named Wafa Sadawe. And uh, we had lunch together and um, I told about work I was doing. And he had a friend who introduced us and he says, hey, do you want to team teach at USF? Let's do a class. Um, what do you want to do it on? I said, let's do it on the big data MBA. I think this, this teach business people how to think like data scientists. Let's teach them how to understand how to master the discipline of analytics as a business discipline, not a technology discipline. So we did the class. It was a great success. I ended up becoming an executive fellow there. It led to the writing of my second book, The Big Data NBA, because as I was trying to build this curriculum, I couldn't find any books that really matched. Yeah, I had my big data book that gave me a good foundation, but there was so much that was missing out there. So when you find things that are missing and you're, and you're, and you're trying to teach and you're compelled to teach, I, I just dived in and wrote my second book. And so, and then my last journey point here was at Itachi Vantara, which was a phenomenal experience. Um, some of the things that we had done there um, around how do you do co-innovation with customers? How do you build analytic assets that continuously learn and adapt? We did some really leading edge work there. I, I, I'm proud to say that I believe I'm going to have between five to seven patents with my names on it. So um, really leading edge work. But it really, all the great IoT and AI ML work we were doing there, what really changed my frame, Kyle, was, was really about how important it was to create an empowered team. My team was successful not because of me. In fact, I would say the team was successful in spite of me. But the one thing that I that I did well, I think, is I really tried to empower the team. In fact, never they came to me for, you know, hey, Bill, I need a decision on this. I would say, you're closer to the problem. What decision would you make? And they would say, well, I would do this. And I say, okay, do it. Right? You're obviously closer to the problem. You're empowered to make those decisions. Now you're gonna you're gonna make some wrong decisions. I'm gonna make wrong decisions. My only request is you think through why you made that recommendation, you think through why it wasn't the right one, and you share it so we all learn. So I really started to realize and saw firsthand how powerful it is when you empower a team. You give everybody the, the ability to lead at any point in time. You create this organizational improvisation so people can take turns leading, people can take turns doing different things. And so I've, I've kind of gone... My, my trajectory really has been very much AI and, and data and analytics, but now I'm seeing, especially in the area of digital transformation, you, you can't have digital transformation if you haven't also transformed your, your teams and your employees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's something really interesting that you was talking about there throughout the, your, your journey from a teaching standpoint um, around the big data MBA. And I, I guess 
it, that intrigues me because I think that certainly here in the UK, and I say this to all our American guests, you guys are a lot more aggressive in adopting things. So you're often further along the journey than, than we are on certain things. But what we're finding here in the UK is that people come out of college and university in the realms of data science and that type of thing. And all of the all they've ever been taught and, and kind of spoken at about is the technology, the technical, yes. the doing. And when these people then come into industry and they realize, okay, so I've got a load of data. A, I don't know where it is. I've got to go and find it. B, it's not nice and pretty. No, nope. um, <laughs> C, I don't have six weeks or months to build the perfect model. And it yeah. actually doesn't need to be 100% accurate. And that and all those concepts combined, when you put something in a workplace for the first time, they're kind of like, wow, you know, what is this place? Um, and there's been some debate recently with a few of the guests that I've had around, maybe the way we should tackle this is by teaching more traditional subjects like business, like finance, whatever the case may be, teach them data analysis as a foundation. So include that in the, in the, you know, in the normal courses of study rather than just, you know, telling someone right, data science is this, and it's about building models and, and that is it, because obviously there's much more to it than that. Just curious to know, is, was that the idea behind yeah. what you did, what you did? Exactly. So we had business students and we had students, some of them were going to be business. We found out some are going to go into healthcare, be nurses. Some are going to go into teaching themselves. So, no, they were all flocking to a bunch of different, industries. Um, they wanted a business foundation, but industry-wise, they're looking to go everywhere. And the Big Data MBA was designed to teach our tomorrow's leaders, both business, government, and society leaders, how to embrace data and analytics as a discipline. And in particular, the thing that jumped out, and this was actually the title of my third book, it's called The Art of Thinking Like a Data Scientist. And so we we created this methodology, this whole process, and I put it into a workbook. It's I sell it for like nine bucks. I just want to make it really cheap so people go out there and get it. And you can find it on my deanofbigdata.com website. I wanted to have something that, that every student could buy. It's a workbook that you walks you through how to think like a data scientist. And it's really built around the idea that a real simple fundamental concept it's around decisions. We focus on decisions because decisions, unlike questions, decisions are actionable. You know you're going to take an action. And the beauty of decisions is every business stakeholder you ever talk to knows what decisions they're trying to make. You can walk them through a process to identify, validate, value, and prioritize those decisions. And once you've done that, you bring the data science team in with them and you collaborate around those decisions because here's the beauty of data sciences, data science team. If they know what decision they're trying to drive and they have a, uh, you know, a subject matter expert who can help guide them, they build great models, right? Because you put guardrails around what they're going to do. There's a, one, of the, one of the chapters in the, in the book is around this thing we call the hypothesis development canvas. It's something we developed. We, um, it's a design thinking tool that I actually developed and have open sourced it so everybody can use it and gotten great feedback on it. But it, we before we ever put data science team to work, before we ever put science to the data, we build out one of these hypothesis development canvases. It's a simple one page. Yeah, you're going to have a probably eight point font, but it tells you the problem you're trying to solve. What are the KPIs and metrics against which you're going to measure progress and success? 
Who are the stakeholders who need to be involved? What are the assets around which you need to build the analytic? What are the decisions, the predictions, the recommendations? What's the financial impact? What's the what's the impediments to success? And and block number thirteen in this panel is what are the costs of false positives and false negatives? Because as a data scientist, we we skip this all the time, right? We we throw data at data scientists and say, "Go find me something interesting." A data scientist doesn't know if a model is good enough until they know the cost of the false positive and false negatives. And that, by the way, is not a data science exercise. That's an exercise of the business stakeholders who can tell you, you know, you think about the cost of false positive and false negatives in the COVID environment, right? The reason why we locked down so quickly is because we didn't know the ramifications. So the cost of the false, you know, the false negatives of thinking somebody's healthy and they're not and, and infecting other people was so high that without data, you had a skew towards false negatives. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, you got me on a topic that I'm very passionate about, which is I think everybody, everybody should learn how to think like a data scientist, how to explore, how to try, how to fail, how to learn, how to share, and how to try again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's really fascinating because I think there's there's so much talk in the industry now and and the way that most organizations attract talent, especially at the, you know, the data science end of the spectrum is still very much on that technical basis. And then these people get into the organization and these organizations are then often, you know, complaining for want of a better word that, well, we need people to be better at telling stories and better at engaging stakeholders and better therefore influencing to, to get better outcomes and results and all that type of stuff. And, Obviously, yes, that they do to a certain extent, right. and that needs to be part, you know, part of their skill set. But often, I do wonder whether, you know, a lot of these people are doing things blindly. They have no context, no business context as to why they're doing something. It's just a another project that lands on the desk that they've got to do. They move it on, and in comes the next one. And I and I almost feel that, you know, whilst we're busy complaining about the, these people, some of them aren't forward facing enough client facing enough stakeholder engaging whatever the case may be if you just give them a bit more context as to why they're doing what they're doing that will probably help them go a long way if that makes sense so totally. i'm going to give you a really weird example <laughs> so um which is normal because i'm a weird person so as you as you well said here kyle data science is a team sport you need different people to be involved i mean when we create a data science pod so whenever we attack a project we attack it with a pod concept concept so we got a data scientist, we have data engineers, we might have an ML engineer. We have um, uh, we have business subject matter experts involved. We have a value engineer involved who's trying to do the finances. And we always add a design thinker who's designed to help us create the story across the people and drives and drive collaboration. So, and when I when I explain to people how to build a team, I say this is the most important, powerful management tool I ever I ever use. And in fact, this particular game here, if I can show it to you, Final Fantasy II, yeah. I wrote a blog and done some presentations on why, why data science is like playing a game of Final Fantasy II. And what, what you've learned is that you have to pick a team. Everybody has to take a turn leading. You all play different roles. You have different skill sets. You have one person who's really good with a knife. One person is good at healing somebody else, right? If you build a team with all robots, the team is great at the beginning, but never advances. So you, it's you the it's a team sport and what i find for me personally very exciting is when you bring together a team of different perspectives very diverse perspectives but you empower them to all have a voice where all ideas are worthy of consideration 
you come up with great ideas. I learn a ton from my team because yep. I hire, I try to hire people who, who are smarter than me, who have better experiences than me and aren't afraid to share them. But at the end of the day, I know as a team leader, my job is to bring together all these ideas and try to transition from the least worst idea to the best, best idea. But I know at the end of the day, as a leader, I'm also the tiebreaker. Mm -hmm. I'm also the, the person at the end of the day who has to take responsibility for that. And I feel a lot more confident in that responsibility when I have a strong team of empowered people around me. Yeah, makes perfect sense. So I guess brings us up to this point. So the, the release of your fourth book, um, and obviously the topic of today's conversation, um, although I feel like, Bill, we could probably ramble on for hours and hours about various different things, but we'll save that. Fun for, too, yeah. yeah, it would. <laughs> we'll save that for another time. But what, what was the driving force behind the new book then? Just kind of give us the title and the, you know, the high level concepts, what you were hoping to achieve out of it. So the, the title of the book is called The Economics of Data Analytics and Digital Transformation. Guaranteed to be a real snoozer, right? I mean, it's got, <laughs> it's, it's got textbook written all over it. And I wrote it as a textbook. Every chapter has a series of exercises at the end that I really want to make sure that people start to think about data and analytics as economic assets, not technology thingies, right? Um, my, my bigger goal is to win a Nobel Prize in economics. And so I figured writing a book about economics and data analytics would be a good way to it. But I, I'm on a mission. And I, I guess, Kyle, you could say that even when I got started back in the 1980s with the data warehouse and BI, and again, one of those four Scott moments in the, in, the, in the mid 80s, I was very fortunate to be running some of the very first data warehouse projects. And the work we did at Procter & Gamble was eye-opening for me. Um, not from a technology perspective, but from a how they use the data and analytics to drive businesses. The, the idea behind the, the book reflects the fact that most of my life, probably 90%, 95% of my life, people have looked at data as a cost to be minimized. Everybody you talk to is a cost. Think about a data warehouse. You store aggregated data. You don't store granular data because it would cost you a friggin' fortune to buy all the storage you needed back in the 80s and 90s, right? You'd store 24 months of data, not 24 years of data. So everything is designed to shrink the data down. And what happens when you start aggregating data, you, you wipe out all the valuable nuances in the data. And it's like going wine tasting and slabbing Vaseline on your tongue. All the important stuff gets lost, right? And so I've been on this mission to figure out what is the value of data? How do I, how can I help champion putting data on a balance sheet so that people can see why what I do is so important? So fast forward to the University of San Francisco. Being a professor has advantages. I have access to a bunch of research students, right? Who are very smart, very motivated, and are free. So I said, we're going to do a project. I want you to go off and I want you to help me understand how do I put value around data? I want you to look at assets on a balance sheet and tell me which of these look like what data looks like. And so they go off, they do all their great whistly work and they're, they're, they don't know what they can't, but they're not supposed to know other great thinking. And one of them comes back to me, she comes back to me and she says, Professor Schmarzo, she's like, I got a problem. She says, there's nothing in a balance sheet that looks like data. Just think about data. Never depletes, never wears out. It can be used across an infinite number of use cases at a marginal cost equal to zero. And when she said that, I realized, oh my gosh, my frame had been wrong the whole time. 
I had been thinking about this from a balance sheet perspective, from an accounting perspective. And accounting looks at valuation by what you pay for something, right? Value in exchange. But the value of your car is, you know, $30,000 if you paid $30,000 for it, right? So it's there's all these really clear rules, the gap rules that explain valuation. That's great. This wasn't an accounting challenge. This was an economics challenge. And the fact that you could use this stuff over and over and over again at a marginal cost equal to zero, that's the economic multiplier effect. And so what happened is my frame changed entirely how I thought about it. It wasn't, wasn't trying to sell data from monetization perspective. It was how you use it. And when, and when, you cha- when I changed that frame, all these examples just jumped out. What Google's doing, what Yahoo's doing, what Netflix's doing, what Tesla's doing, what Procter & Gamble, all these examples of organizations that are really good at using data to drive decisions became really clear. So the book really represents that whole journey. It brings it all together. The methodology we developed at University of San Francisco to actually determine the value of data, the work that we've done recently around um, the how to build analytic assets that are continuously learning and growing, that's built off a very provocative overlooked phrase from Elon Musk. Elon Musk had said, he believes when you buy a Tesla, you're buying an asset that appreciates, not depreciates in value. And when people first heard that, they're all like, oh yeah, you're you're thinking that's, you, you buy the car and you stick it in the garage in 20 years from now, it's worth more. No, no, he's not talking about a 1964 and a half Ford Mustang. He's talking about the fact that the, this AI modules that did help drive the car, in fact, shadow drive, shadow whoever's driving are constantly getting more efficient, more safe, more effective, more, they're learning constantly. And anything that one car learns, it rifles back to the cloud, the Tesla cloud in the sky, it munches it all together and back propagates it to all the other 600,000 cars out there. So all these cars are getting smarter. They're getting safer. They're getting more efficient. It's a, it's a genius stroke, mm-hmm. but there's like, you know, just a handful of companies out there that have sort of understood that Elon Musk is playing a different game, folks. Either you play it too, or you're going to find yourselves digitally transformed out of the world. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the whole topic of data monetization has definitely rose in popularity, you know, over the last few years, especially. And I think, um, you know, it started as what you very loosely described, but around how do you get value? You know, because if you think about what most organizations are, you know, they've got the data, they put some analytics on it, and they do that to increase sales, revenue, profit, reduce cost, mitigate some risk, operational efficiencies, et cetera. But but all of them tangibly come back to a a number of, you know, they try to bring it back to a number. But then obviously there was the other side of the coin when companies obviously started to realize, which when I first heard the example, it blew my mind. But, you know, for example, um, Foot Locker can sell Nike's data back to them. And I was like, what? So, you know, the external side of it. So just to be clear for the, for the audience, so you're talking about monetizing data more on the internal than the external piece there, right? You can, you can certainly, well, you know, for example, Foot Locker selling data back to Nike, um, Procter & Gamble and Walmart back in the 80s had a data exchange. In fact, yeah. most of the CPG manufacturers have a data exchange with most of the large retailers. Um and the reason why is they're both working and trying to optimize decisions, inventory decisions, 
display? Do you, is it end cap, middle aisle? Where are you? So think about all the decisions that you a retailer is trying to make and all the insights that they have around the operations and all the insights that a Procter & Gamble has across the world about what works, what doesn't work. When you bring those together, you create much better, more refined decisions. So there is certainly an opportunity to sell or share data and providing value but it's minuscule. The value generated from that is minuscule compared to the value you have in driving your own operations. Now think about all the detailed customer product and operational propensities and insights buried in your data. You can use that to dramatically improve customer retention. Uh, we did a project where we um, looked at propensity to buy and we, we basically figured out you know, that the 25% who are most likely to buy targeted our marketing that, right? We spent 25% of the marketing or 75% less of the marketing budget and got the same return. We got the customers we're going to need and we spent, you know, 75% less. Now imagine doing that across hundreds of use cases. The other thing here, Kyle, which is really important is as you build these analytics, what we, the University of San Francisco research project identified this problem that when it first was came out, I didn't, I didn't really think much about it, which is this idea of orphaned analytics people building analytics to solve a retention problem, to solve a, a, a money laundering problem, to solve, you know, to solve a particular problem. And they get a nice little Krispy Kreme donut, sugar donut kind of rush from it, provides a nice little benefit, but it isn't operationalized, it's not sustained. And what happens is these, these modules, these, these orphan analytics written by Joe in the back room, when Joe leaves and goes somewhere else, there's no one to support that model. And so all the value attached to that model soon dissipates. And so as organizations start to understand that they drive value through the use of the data, through analytics, if you can build your analytics in a manner that they're constantly re being reused over and over again, then you get a huge multiplier effect in economic value data. There are, there are literally three things that happen. When you reuse the data and you reuse the analytics as analytic modules, there's three important economic impacts. Number one, your economic costs flatten, your marginal costs flatten, right? You, vent, you, you pretty soon have all the data that you need, which by the way, isn't all the data. You probably have data that you don't want to put out there. In fact, you might have data you don't even want to store anymore for liability reasons. But so pretty soon you have all the data you're going to need in your data lake. Pretty soon you've built all these reusable analytic modules so that you each use case you go after, you, know, you, you becomes, you know, the cost drives down. You're reusing stuff. Number two, by reusing the data and analytics, you actually accelerate time to value and de-risk the next use cases. So you're able to go after the next use cases much faster. So first one is around customer retention, next one's around customer advocacy and likelihood to recommend and you know all the other, you know, so all the other, you know, likelihood to commit fraud, there's use cases just kind of pile up and you start reusing. So you 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 increase the time to value because you can de-risk projects and accelerate time to value for those use cases. But the third effect is the real gotcha is that any of the analytic modules that you've used in any of those use cases, if you make an improvement in that module, if you make it 1% more effective, 1% more accurate, every use case that used that particular module just got a 1% boost for free, mm -hmm. right? That is where the thing is a game changer. Then you see this explosion of value happen where you've got this handful of analytic modules that are being reused. You know, and I'm talking about, you know, deep learning, reinforcement learning, all the, you know, all really powerful things, but they're constantly learning and adapting. And many times they're doing it with very minimal human intervention. 
constantly getting smarter and all these use cases are sharing this learning so that the, the value just explodes. So sorry, I went off on a tangent there. So that is, to me, is it's, it's the economic aspects of data and analytics. This not only in this case of data, an asset that never depletes, never wears out, can be used across an infinite number of use cases at zero marginal cost, but also these analytic modules that whose value continues to increase and ripples back, back propagates back to every other use case. I mean, that's that's just absolutely intriguing just to kind of hear you talk about that, Bill. And obviously you're hugely passionate about that. So here's kind of my two pennies worth. And um, I guess what I find really interesting is that we're forever in this space talking about how do we drive decisions that drive value? You know, and then that, that word value is now almost becoming this buzzword within itself, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's being yeah. used that much. But when you talk then to people, you know, data analytics leaders all over the world, and you talk to them about ROI, for example, it almost becomes really difficult for a lot of these people to say, well, this is the ROI on what we've done and why we've done it. Um, so to hear you talking about, you know, this whole monetization piece so passionately and, and kind of here's these three steps and here's what you've got to do to kind of make it make it happen. Um is obviously kind of you know just um, it's fantastic to hear. But why why do a lot of businesses seem to struggle with with kind of getting to that point where they can start to put numbers on things? Yeah. So the only way that I have found there's probably other ways out there, but the methodology that I have found is works works best is this this value engineering framework that I've I've talked about and it's in I think it's in two of my books where I kind of outline it. And the idea is, if you want to figure out what your data and analytics is worth, the only thing that has value inside a company are the use cases. If you can improve customer retention by 5%, that's worth something. If you can improve, reduce operational downtime by 2%, that's worth something. So you, so the, the data and analytics conversation must start with the business. And that's where, by the way, that's why we that's why things get off in the wrong tangent, right? We think it's the CIO's problem. We think it's the chief data officer's problem. No, it's it's the CEO's problem. And it's got to start by focusing on what's important to the business. And so the the whole thinking like a data scientist process and the value engineering process says you need to understand what is it the company's trying to accomplish. You're trying to, you know, um, reduce inventory costs, open more stores, you know, improve in a new market, whatever it is, pick that problem. And if and what you if it's an executive level problem, not only is there value attached to it, they probably know what that's worth to the organization. But equally important, you've got somebody in the business who's not sleeping at night because they own that problem. I love people who own a problem that lets them not sleep at night because I can help them. Because a lot of what we're going to do is we're going to shift how they think about how they make their decisions. Right, we're going to focus on the decisions but we're going to use data and analytics to help optimize and make humans more efficient in making those decisions. We're going to make them faster. We're going to make them more granular and we're going to learn from them. So this, this valuation process must include the business stakeholders. It has to start with them. And so I think, I think Kyle, why you see some of these, these conversations go sideways is that we start in the wrong spot. We start with the data. We're going to start with data. No, no. We're going to start with the business problem first, Next, we're going to identify all the business stakeholders who either impact or are impacted by that initiative. And then we're going to go through an envisioning process, a lot of design thinking techniques, 
with those stakeholders together to identify, validate, value, and prioritize the decisions they're trying to make. Now we've got a framework for saying, okay, we know these are the most important decisions. We know that these decisions are, 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 are tied to these, here, the precursors to these, and you can build a roadmap now. And you go basically decision by decision or use case by use case to build out your data lake and your analytics. It's easy, but you have to change the frame. If you walk in thinking it's about data and analytics, you're already lost. Leave the room. Gotta be a business conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because I think we're at that stage. Obviously, lots of people are talking about this now, Bill. Um, not, I'm not too sure many as passionately as you, but um, there's a lot of people talking about, obviously, you've got to start with the business and business problems. And I couldn't agree more that I feel that a lot of businesses especially ones that are on the start of that journey or the thinking about starting that journey. I think that, you know, and I say this a lot, um, but I feel like there's almost this obligation that they should be doing something with data analytics because they feel that everyone else is. And what that leads to is probably what you just said. They go looking for either problems or opportunities within the data. And actually what they need to be thinking about is, okay, here's where we are as a business here are the challenges or here are the opportunities and then go and find the data that supports those initiatives rather than the other way around, right? Bingo. And here's here's the problem, part of the problem. Um, I think we have, I'm going to probably get a lot of hate mail for this, so don't give my address. <laughs> so, um, I think there's a lot of CIOs out there who have risen to be CIOs because they survived the SAP ERP implementation. Right? They, the, the, the big bang IT projects were you know, they dominated the work, the, the, the stories, right? There was ERP and then Salesforce automation and customer relationship management and everything was a big bang. It, everything, you know, it cost 20 to $40 million. It took you four to five years. It cost thousands of lives. And at the end, you hope something of value squirted out, right? We don't need to do that. With the cloud, with open source technologies, with all the advances made in technology, we don't need to do big bang. In fact, big bang is not good. What we're gonna do is we're gonna do it use case by use case. And the reason why a use case by use case approach is so much more powerful than the big bang is that because in knowledge-based industry, the economies of learning are more powerful than the economies of scale. That is, you have to put in place an environment where you're constantly learning. Imagine if you started doing a big ERP or a big, big data analytics project a year and a half ago, you knew it was going to take you four years. You're in this thing for a year and all of a sudden COVID hits. Everything you were working on just got trashed, right? But if you got small bites and you're building this thing out small at a time and you're learning from each interaction, when the COVID hits, you don't have to jettison what you've done before. You just build upon it. You know, the, your, your, your path just took one of these. Instead of being down a cliff, you just are jigging and jagging like a, like a rugby match. So I think what's happened is that there is this there's a CIOs who are struggling to understand that you can attack this problem use case by use case. You can start off by spending three or $400,000 to solve a problem. You don't need to spend $20 million. And then you can build on that. But it's hard because everybody's looking for that silver bullet that solves it all in one step. I'm going to spend $20 million. And I'm going to solve everybody's problem with one technology. Yep. The economies of learning are more powerful than the economies of scale. Absolutely. So look, this leads us nicely um, into the the next piece of this, which is 
I know that you're obviously an advocate for there to be a role of the chief data monetization officer. Um, and I know that when we spoke offline, you said you're speaking to organizations and tr- basically trying to convince them that that's, that's the job that you should have, right? So uh, Exactly, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I can't wait to see how this pans out. But um, why don't you just... Um, why don't you just give the audience kind of a bit of a, an insight into, you know, what you think that is and that looks like. And, um, you know, is that a separate role from the CDO or the CDAO or whatever that, you know, that business might have? And and why is it such a foreign concept? So let me explain what I think a chief data monetization officer does, what their responsibilities are. Um, I think it's a superset of the chief data officer who, by the way, today, most chief data officers look like a mini-me CIO. I mean, they just took a CIO, gave them the data shit stuff, and then uh, (laughs) called them a CDO, right? You can can edit that out, right? But so to me, a chief data monetization officer has four primary responsibilities. Number one, they have to own the process of identifying where value is created within their customer base. Not only where value is created, but also where impediments to value occur. So they got to go through a process to identify the value creation aspects and to identify and try to figure out how to eliminate the impediments of value creation. That's an economic conversation. That's a design thinking conversation. It's customer journey maps. That's service designs. It has nothing to do with technology. It has everything to do with understanding your customers and their journey and how do they realize value. So that's number one. Number two, once you've identified those sources of value, you have to codify it. That's data science. I'm going to take those sources of value and I'm going to build analytics around it. And both of those sources of value, by the way, revolve around decisions. So I'm going to build analytics for each of the decisions. And if you think about Uber, for example, I think Uber is a great success story. Uber has mastered the one decision, right? The one decision, the decision I have to make about how do I get from where I am to where I want to be. And Uber has mastered that decision and done it in such a great way. And so you need to build analytics to codify those decisions because once you've codified them in data science with reusable analytic assets and things like that, the third step is you have to operationalize them. What you've codified now has to be put into operationalized. And the reason why you codify, by the way, because you got to scale it. I can't be dependent upon Bob who wrote my first you know, model. I've got to have a team who knows how to build this thing. It's not built, it's actually engineered so it can be reused. So now it has to find its way into my operational systems, into my ERP system, procurement systems, my website systems, my mobile apps, et cetera, right? So I've got to be able to put them into operations. And then number four, this, is, this was the aha moment for me in the last couple of years here, Kyle is I have to build a culture of continuous learning and adapting. Now, what that means on the AI side is I need to have a feedback loop that's telling me how effective the decisions are so that I can constantly modify and improve and handle model drift. But on the human side, I also have to build an environment where I create empowered people, people who are willing to speak forward about ideas of how we can improve our customer service, how we can improve our products, how we can improve our operations. I got to create empowered people because what happens is the, the AI, it's only going to learn from the data it has. Humans can learn from data they don't have. They can observe and learn. And, and when I bring those two together, now I got digital transformation. So to me, that's what a chief data monetization officer does. Now, somebody's going to say, holy cow, who, 
who in the hell would do that? By the way, see this back here? This outlines everything that I've written about and believe in and how it ties back to those four steps to identify, codify, operationalize, and continuously learn and adapt. The reality is when I ask people about this, and I say, well, I'm interested in the chief data monetization officer role. 99% of the people I talk to go, well, we don't have that role. We don't have, we don't have that role, right? <laughs> and I, and I, and I, I want to say, and I don't, because you got to make sure you don't burn bridges. I, what I want to say is, and that's probably why you suck at doing data monetization. <laughs> you don't have anybody who owns that. You don't have anybody in the company who owns monetizing data. And you wonder why no one's doing it for you. You wonder why you suck at it. But I don't say that. I go, oh, well, if you ever get the need to have such a person, you might want to give me a call. By the way, here's my book. <laughs> but it's it's there is a slow movement afoot where people are starting to realize that the chief data officer in their current incarnation was set up poorly. Um, the person has good technology skills, but as you said earlier, Kyle, they didn't have good business skills. And you have to have people who can straddle that line. Um, I do it, I think, pretty well, and I'm not unique. I think there's a lot of people out there who can do it if you just gave them the charter and the tools to do such. So to me, the, the chief data monetization officer, by having that in my LinkedIn thing, probably immediately disqualifies me from <laughs> all kinds of different jobs out there. People look at that and go, like I said, well, we don't have that role here. So, um, but the good news is I'm talking to a couple of companies, a handful of companies who realize they need that role and realize they need somebody who can bring this kind of stuff and the book learnings to bear to help organizations monetize their data. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think this spans, in my opinion, at, at every single level across the, the sphere of data analytics is that I get hate mail might be a little bit strong, but uh, I certainly get some stern messages. But I think that as an industry, most organizations are pretty woeful at attracting talent within our space because, you know, look at any job spec. It doesn't matter if it's a, a CDO role, whether it's a director level role, whether it's a, you know, entry level data scientist role. All of them, uh, all of them, it's a bit harsh. I'd say 85, 90% of these job specs, if you read them, it's, it talks about the business, the culture, the environment. And then the other side of the coin is list of technical skills, you know, and it's normally a very long list. And it's, you know, um, I've seen roles advertised at the, you know, the, the director and VP level saying, you know, you need to have a PhD in data science and you need to be able to build ML models and you need to be versed in Google Cloud Platform. And I'm kind of thinking, well, why? You know, you yeah. have people that do that for you. So the focus is always around the tech. And then what happens is, candidates at every level they they almost feel obliged to pander to the tech because that's what they need to get that job so we're in this never-ending cycle of you know okay i've got to focus on the tech to get the job i get in there they realize it's not working and they go back to market and they advertise based on tech and so on and so forth so i, I love that kyle because basically you're talking about confirmation bias yeah right? we're only we're just reconfirming that all the biases we already have that this role needs to be technical and so everybody we look for is technical. Everybody comes in as technical. We suffer from the same challenges that an AI model from suffers from by, by having this confirmation bias. But anyway, it was yeah. a great, I, sorry, I had to say it. No, no, it's fine. No problem. So I guess 
obviously we're at this stage now where there's people like yourself out there talk, you know, proactively talking to companies about, have you thought about this is, you know, and, and I'm sure that's, you know, if you're speaking to the right people within a business, that's going to, you know, garner some, some interest, I, I'm sure. But why, why for most organizations, is this still a foreign concept? Why has no one clicked onto, you know, okay, we've got someone in here that, you know, a chief data officer that is, getting everything done from a technical standpoint to allow us to do analytics and to try and drive some value. But there's no one really measuring how or what we're doing. Is it that most organizations just think that if they hire a CDO, that gets done in that role? Or or is it that they're just not thinking about it full stop? I do think they're looking for a magic bullet that you hire a a CDO and that person's going to own the monetization problem and they're ill-equipped for it. But you, you hit on a, a, another problem. I'm sorry, I'm going to go on a slight tangent here, Kyle, but you hit on a problem that's really critical for organizations. You talked about that these organizations are woeful at, at drawing right talent. They're even worse at nurturing their own people. What I find, it stuns me. It stuns me at every company I go to, how once you get in the door, that your credibility is automatically reduced, that you're more credible as an outsider yelling in through the window than you are somebody who's sitting at the table trying to fix the problem. Organizations do a shitty, you can keep that on there, a shitty job of nurturing their employees. Yeah, they give them training, they, but, they, but they don't really help them get the right skill sets to be successful. It's not about learning Python and Jupyter notebooks and things like that. No, it's really about, ultimately, it's the soft skills for how do you bring together diverse perspectives? How do you synergize to move away from the least worst option, which is how most organizations decide, right? They always decide on, well, we'll pick the worst, the least worst option instead of synergizing and creating the best, best option. Organizations totally don't get this. They think it's a technology problem it's a cultural problem. And at the heart, it's an empowerment problem. So I think this is the heart of the problem. They bring in people who have the right, and they've got people who have the right skill sets, but they don't know how to liberate those people. They don't know how to, and it starts at the senior level, the organization. It always frustrates me when I walk into an organization and the senior executives have to be the smartest people in the room. I know that company's doomed. Right? Because when you start looking at AI, AI is not going to help the people in the mahogany row, right? the people in the puzzle palace. AI is going to have, have to help the people at the front line of operations, the people who are engaging with customers or are trying to keep the operations up and running. That's where AI is going to have an impact. And so if you have some senior vice president trying to make decisions for somebody who is a, you know, working on the front lines, it don't work. That person probably never worked on the front line. You ever been a barista? You ever been a, you know, a roughneck? You ever done any of this sort of stuff? No, they haven't done this. So it's, um, I think we have this, this really bad problem around culture. Um, I'm a big fan of design thinking um, as a vehicle for enabling because I've seen it work firsthand. I've seen what happens when you walk in and you, and you empower people and how creativity and innovation just blossom. So um I think it, that culture always starts on the mahogany roll. They mm-hmm. set culture, right? It's like the, you know, the zeitgeist of America was, is set by our president. Whether we like it or not, that's what happens. And so if you have people in the lower ranks of the organization, grassroots trying to do things the right way, that's critical. But if you don't have somebody at the top who's sprinkling you know, moisture to help them be successful, all those great ideas are going to die out. 
I'm sat here, Bill, and while I'm obviously listening to to kind of everything you're saying, I'm I'm kind of wondering whether my perspective on some of our industry's problems changing a little bit because I think if we go back to that whole problem that we face around you know this even at the data science level you know when we need these people to be technical and and my message i think sometimes gets misinterpreted and i'm not saying that that's not important because it is there needs to be a certain level of of aptitude i guess to, to do that stuff but obviously they need to be focused on why they're doing it from a business perspective and kind of have those um you know ha- have that kind of knowledge base if, if you like but I guess from just hearing you speak there, I do then wonder whether, you know, the environments that we're putting them in aren't conducive to allowing them to do that, really. You know, so we often talk about, you know, businesses turn around and say, yeah, but he's great technically or she's great technically, but we need them to be a better storyteller. And it's like, well, actually, as I said, listening to you speak, is it a case of these people aren't listening to what these people are trying to tell them? Right. Right. I, that's why we we like to attack these projects using these pods. Yeah. You know, going back to my example, it takes a team, and you're spot on. You you're gonna need people who are great at figuring out which of the different neural network techniques they're gonna use, and how to build a neural network, and how many nodes, and how many levels, and all and all the you know, feature engineering, and all. You're gonna need technical people involved in the process. But the more they know about the problem you're trying to solve the more effective they're going to be in picking the right solutions. And so you, you bring these teams together. It is about empowering the team and, 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 and allowing the team to collaborate so that everybody's, I, we have a very important rule. All ideas are worthy of consideration. I'll take an idea from anybody. No, that doesn't mean all ideas are worth a damn. In fact, most ideas suck, right? <laughs> but, but if you don't have as an organization, you don't have enough might moments, you'll never have any breakthrough moments. And so you've got to be willing to listen to everybody and say, okay, that's not a very good idea. Okay. Wow. Really? Can, we can do that. Right. And those are the moments where the light bulbs go off. And those are the moments, by the way, where I learned something, right? I realized, oh my gosh, I was thinking about this wrong. They just had a better approach. Empowering people is the key and bring them together as a team is key. If the data science team is sitting behind a wall somewhere trying to get things done, they're going to build really, decent models, but not great models. You put them on the front lines, working with the customer together. They don't need to be great storytellers. They need to be good listeners. They get. They need to feel, feel empowered to ask questions. They say, I don't get it. Can you tell me more? There's no reason why you can't build those kind of environments. And by the way, when you do, everybody has fun. It's a blast because you're all learning from each other. Absolutely. On your point there of kind of ideas, that's this, you know, takes me back several years, but it's almost, you know, the law of averages in a sales team, right? You know, it's like, if you knock on enough doors, eventually one of them will open. And I guess it's similar, similar concept, right? You know, if, if everyone's um, willing and open to just share ideas constantly, then eventually there'll be one that comes up that you can actually do something with that becomes the next big, you know, aha moment, I guess. So that's right. If If you don't have enough might moments, you'll never have any breakthrough moments. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so as we start to kind of round this off then Bill, um, I guess on the role of the chief data monetization officer, do you think genuinely that that will come to fruition? Do you think that's what we'll, we'll get to that point? And if so, how long do you think that might take? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I think you're going to see more and more organizations doing this as we replace the current management teams with younger people who don't come with the same set of biases. Um, 
we have a lot of leaders today who have always done things things a certain way. And we know that people are really bad at unlearning things. And so can these people unlearn to learn something new? Certainly you can, but most aren't willing, especially as they get on in their career. They're just hanging on, hanging on to retirement, right? They're counting the days. Um, those are the people who aren't going to change their minds. So I, I do think we're going to see the next generation come in here. They've, they've been taught to understand the value of data and analytics. They understand that data and analytics are the sources for creativity, for um, innovation. Um, but I may be dead and gone before it becomes a household word, but at least put it on my on my gravestone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, so moving into the future then, obviously, f- for you, we know what role you want, um, but what's next in the ideal world? Um, I'm, I'm seeing some really interesting opportunities around helping organizations around data monetization. There's the organizations are want somebody to help them build a team to unleash the value they have inside the organization, all this untapped value. Um, it's, it's actually, it's kind of encouraging. It's not a lot of opportunities, but the ones that I talk to, they're serious about it. And they, they know that it's a, as much a cultural challenge as is a technology challenge, which is a good sign, right? Now you got a chance. If you realize that culture is as, as important as the technology, you got a chance of being successful. If you only think it's a technology problem, then you've got zero chance of being successful. So I, I'm, I'm looking for probably my last gig before I move into teaching full-time because that's how I want to end my career. I want to go back into teaching and maybe doing some small consulting. But I see an opportunity to, just to finish my career by really build on everything I've been doing around data monetization, the economic value of data. I I want to take a lot of these theories and ideas and things I've been learning over the years. And I've learned, by the way, most of these by working with great customers. And so I want to work with more great customers to help them figure out how to solve these problems. So that's where the next gig probably takes me. I probably, the next chapter does. But I do think what you're going to, what I've learned is that more and more of my focus will be on culture and less on technology. Um, And the last chapter of my book, which I actually think is my favorite chapter, is around team empowerment. It isn't, the rest of the book is about, you know, economics and data and analytics. And then you get this random chapter nine around team empowerment. Kind of like, what was Schmarzo smoking then, right? But (laughs) it's, it's actually my favorite chapter. And I realized after writing it, how much I love sort of the cultural challenges. And I think that more and more of my focus going forward will be less around enabling technologies and more about empowering teams. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so if people want to reach out to you after listening to this episode, what's the best way for them to do so? And, and how can they get their hands on your book? So um, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Um, Schmarzo, right? Too many of us out there. Um, send me a note. Um, you can reach me on Twitter as well, though I don't do as well on Twitter messages and such. Um, the book's on Amazon. Um, if you, if you get the book from Amazon and you read it and you like it, I would, I would ask for you to write me a nice review on, on Amazon. If you get the book and read it and don't like it, I would ask you to tell me on, (laughs) use Facebook to complain about it. (laughs) (laughs) But I would, I would like to know if you, if you, if you've read the book and you don't like it, tell me what you didn't like about it. I mean, there were obviously something we're always learning, right? And well, I'm not currently planning a, a fifth book. I wasn't planning a fourth book either. So you never know what moved you. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, fascinating conversation, and um, we look forward to hopefully having you on again very soon. Yeah, we can we can touch base and see after I've taken my next job if uh, if my career aspirations are still going the right direction. <laughs> absolutely. All right, Bill. Speak soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Kyle. Bye. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.